All right, it is time for our September Patreon shoutouts, but we do have some August ones that I missed, and I do apologize for these belated birthday wishes, but I want to say a very happy birthday to Diana and to Flyest Bird. And the reason I'm saying Flyest Bird rather than her real name is that she's also a content creator over on Patreon, and you may want to check her out. So for September, this beautiful month where, at least here in Kansas City, the weather is about as good as it ever gets, I want to say happy birthday to Allison, Anne-Marie, Beth, Cassandra, Krista, Eva, Fallon, Gabrielle, Gina, Joyce, Katrain, Kelly, Liz, Luann, Russ, Samuel, Sarah, and Viv. Thank you so much for your support on Patreon, and I hope everyone has a fantastic birthday month. Usually I tell everyone to have a piece of cake for me, but we are in the birthday season for my children. Five of my six children were born between August 21st and November 2nd, so I'm swimming in birthday cake right now. So I will just join all of you here at my home and have a piece of cake for you. Happy birthday, everybody. When Joshua Bailey went to his parents in the summer of 2008, asking for their help getting his life on track, they were thrilled. Preparing a future for Josh was what they wanted. But when he went missing and his future cut short, they decided to work on making a future for others in the same situation. I'm Charlie and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome to Crime Lines. The good news about me not having any events coming up is that we don't have two minutes of announcements before we get to the case. Today's case was recommended by a listener who would like to remain anonymous, but they do know who they are, and I wanted to thank them for sending me this suggestion. It's not a case I had heard of before, but there were some very important issues here, as well as amazing advocacy that came in the aftermath. The main sources for this episode were the documentary show, Twisted Killers, and Court Documents. This case centers around a young man named Joshua Bailey. Josh was born in early 1988. He and his two younger brothers ended up in foster care. In 1996, when he was eight and his brothers were seven and four, they were all adopted as a sibling group by Steve and Julie Bailey. Their mother, Julie, has written about their experiences going through the system, which I will have linked in the sources. Though she does cover all three boys' stories, I am going to focus on Josh. By the time Josh was fostered and then adopted by the Baileys, he had been in nine homes between foster homes, kinship placements, and reunification attempts. I'll repeat that he was only eight years old. He had more moves and more caretakers than he had years of life. When the Baileys looked at adopting the boys, they were told that all three had ADHD diagnoses, and as such, they were classified as special needs. With three young boys with ADHD, I'm sure they prepared themselves for lots of energy, plenty of IEP meetings, and specific behavioral routines. But they soon learned that ADHD was not the only issue present for any of the children. Steve and Julie then spent the next several years having the boys fully evaluated, getting them in the right educational settings for their needs, and even digging into their full backgrounds to know what traumas they had experienced. Josh was diagnosed with what Julie called rage disorder, which is also called intermittent explosive disorder. It is characterized by sudden and impulsive outbursts of anger and aggression. Sometimes it can lead to violence, and it is always out of proportion to whatever triggered it. One of the biggest risk factors is childhood abuse and trauma. 
something Josh had experienced. The Baileys ended up moving to Chapel Hill, North Carolina, a college town with better access to mental health treatment for their boys. In the fourth grade, Josh was diagnosed with a severe learning disability on top of everything else. It is not uncommon for a learning disability to be missed in a child with behavioral issues, since it's hard to tell what they can do and what they are choosing not to do. Additionally, the frustration from struggling to learn and the impact on their self-esteem can lead to them acting out. So what is a manifestation of the impact of their learning disability looks like just another outburst. So that's just a quick pep talk to parents who have children with behavioral disorders. Don't feel badly if you find out when they're 10 or 11 that they also have a learning disability. You didn't miss it. It was just hidden under a pile of other things. Josh would go on to later be diagnosed with and treated for bipolar disorder. At 13, Josh attended the Wright School in North Carolina, where the family lived. The Wright School is a residential treatment center for kids grades K through 8, where they receive inpatient treatment while still attending school in specialized classrooms. It focuses on children with emotional and behavioral disorders, of which Josh had both. Josh spent seven months at the right school, and Julie wrote that he came back like a new person. He thrived on the structure and the intensive counseling, and when he came home, he integrated back into family life. His mother said he worked hard to fit in with others, he was kind and generous, And while he wasn't cured from his early experiences with trauma and neglect, he seemed to have a lot more tools to deal with it. In 2006, Josh turned 18 and things changed because he was now a legal adult. His parents had spent 10 years trying to help him heal from his first eight years of life. And then, overnight, they lost all of that legal control over medications and doctor's appointments because Josh was an adult. He wasn't in a place where a guardianship or a conservatorship was appropriate, but he also wasn't ready to take control of his entire life. And because he was 18, Josh lost his Medicaid health insurance, which he was eligible for after his adoption due to his special needs. His parents were able to switch him to their private insurance since he was still in school. But then at 19, Josh dropped out of community college and suddenly he had no health insurance. I know people in countries with universal health care ask what we do in the U.S. if we don't have insurance and can't afford care. And this is the answer. We go without it. Now, children can stay on their parents' health insurance plans until the age of 26, but not in 2006 when Josh became an adult. That's a relatively new change. If you weren't in school as a young adult back then, you were on your own as far as health insurance went. Julie managed to find a therapist for Josh who would do a sliding scale payment, meaning he paid based on his income. And Josh's father, Steve, would drive him there just to make sure he went to those appointments. But Josh was on and off his medication, and soon he began drinking and experimenting with drugs. This substance use was twofold. Part of it was Josh trying to self-medicate his bipolar disorder. The other part was Josh's desire to fit in with his peers. A lot of 19 and 20-year-olds drink and smoke pot. But for Josh, someone who experienced both depression and mania, these substances made those swings wider and the symptoms more pronounced. 
Around this time, Josh was also doing something else typical of his age. He was trying to get more independence from his parents. But he wasn't the typical 19 or 20-year-old in his ability to make decisions, juggle bills, hold down a job even, and just really be out on his own with all that entails. Josh was impulsive, and he was very trusting. He was easy for someone to take advantage of. His parents wanted to protect him from that, but Josh wanted to be an adult. So he started staying out for days at a time, checking in with his family here and there. At one point, Josh told a friend's mom that he had actually been kicked out of his house. It was a lie so that she would feel sympathy for him and let him stay there. Julie and Steve had not kicked him out. Josh eventually came home again for a bit until he found a placement at a group home for adults, which seemed like a very good blend of independence and supervision. But after a manic cycle where Josh broke multiple rules of the house, He was discharged from the program in April 2008. Now 20 years old, Josh refused to move back home. Instead, he couch-surfed with his friends, sleeping in whatever home would put him up for the night. Josh did work odd jobs, but he would have periods where he was out of work. Julie and Steve would give him money so that he would at least be able to eat and afford basic necessities. It took about two months of living like this after leaving the group home that Josh realized he wasn't going anywhere. He wanted more out of life than he currently had, but he knew he had to get clean and sober to live the life he wanted. In June 2008, Josh went to Steve and Julie and said that he wanted to go to rehab and get his life back on track. His parents absolutely and unequivocally supported these plans, just as they had supported him since he first came into their lives. For the next several weeks, they saw or talked to Josh pretty much daily to check in and see where he was as he worked towards his goals. The biggest immediate goal was to get enough money for an inpatient program. On Monday, July 21st, over a month since Josh first approached them about rehab, he came over to the family home looking disheveled. Julie and Steve were immediately concerned, but Josh said it was actually a good thing. He had been mowing lawns and earning money more regularly. It was another step towards stabilizing his life. Before Josh left that day, they made plans for him to come over on Saturday for a cookout, and then the following week, they would get together for Julie's birthday. Josh said he would call them later on to figure out when and where they could pick him up, since he didn't have his own transportation. But Josh never called. And then he didn't call the next weekend, Julie's birthday. And they were worried enough at this point that they went to the Chapel Hill police to report him missing on August 5th. And Julie and Steve were told that Josh was an adult who didn't have to call home if he didn't want to. The Baileys tried to explain that Josh had been in regular contact with them for the last two months, and it had been two weeks since they heard from him. They pointed out that he was a vulnerable adult, as he had bipolar disorder and was without his medication. The officer said that they would take the family's missing persons flyer and announce it at the start of shift so that patrol officers could be aware of this, but they were not going to file a missing persons report. Julie and Steve then went home and tried to figure out where Josh could be. It seemed none of his friends had heard from him. Eventually, a friend of the Baileys called a friend of hers who worked for the Orange County Sheriff. Chapel Hill is in Orange County, North Carolina, 
So they were able to look into the case even if the Chapel Hill police wouldn't. This friend told Major Tim Horn about Josh and how the Baileys couldn't get help from their local police. He promised he would look into it. The next day, he met with Julie and Steve. It was August 19th, about a month since they had last seen Josh. Tim Horn was a highly respected investigator. He would go on to use genetic genealogy to solve one of the county's longest-running unsolved cases, just days before he retired. And you can see by how he handled Josh Bailey's disappearance why he had such a good reputation as an investigator. This is an example of an investigation done right. Though it does make me wonder what would have happened to this case if the Baileys didn't know someone who knew someone in law enforcement. What happens to all the cases where the family doesn't have someone they can call? But thank goodness the Baileys had this because Major Horn took the information from the family. He issued a be on the lookout to area police. And then he issued a silver alert for Josh to the general public. In North Carolina, a silver alert can be issued for individuals with dementia or other cognitive impairment who are missing. The requirement is that the missing person is believed to be suffering from dementia or Alzheimer's disease or has a disability that requires them to be protected from potential abuse or other physical harm, neglect, or exploitation. Josh qualified under that last part. The Baileys were also given contacts at the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, who do provide resources for families of missing young adults ages 18 to 20. They were given a peer mentor through Team Hope, which essentially pairs families of newly missing kids and young adults with another family who has already been through this. It really helps them know what to expect, what they can do, what questions they should be asking the police, and so on. It's that person you can lean on who knows what you're going through because they've been there. The Baileys were paired with a family who had a long-term missing child. And while it was helpful, it was also a reminder that not all missing persons are found. And Steve and Julie couldn't imagine doing this for another week, let alone a year, 10 years, 20 years. Their hope was that the investigation would bring them answers long before that. And as often happens, the family was home wondering what was happening while a full and active investigation was going on just outside of their site. The police did checks with Josh's friends and found that no one had seen him in a while, at least three weeks, and he hadn't stayed with anyone in that time frame. On August 25th, the investigators checked with other jurisdictions to see if they had any information on Josh and they got one hit. He was listed as a possible suspect in a residential break-in back on July 28th, about a week after his family had last seen him. Two other suspects were also listed, Brian Minton and Matt Johnson. The police had been familiar with both of these names. Matt was a friend of Josh's who the family had already mentioned to them as someone Josh spent a lot of time with. Brian Minton didn't have a known connection to Josh, but he was well-known by the police. He was 18 and had a record for a firearms charge, as well as being a suspect in a rape and an arson. He was, at the time, on supervised probation.
The break-in that listed Josh as a suspect was at the Kronbach home, and their daughter, Sarah, was dating Matt Johnson at the time. Two checks and some guns were reported stolen from the house. Sarah told the police that Brian Minton had gotten the guns back for her dad, and he told her that Matt and Josh had brought them over to his house. So it was on Brian's word that Matt and Josh were suspects. Now, Chapel Hill is a college town with a population of about 60,000 people, but it's still essentially in many ways a small town. One of the investigators knew Brian's dad, Greg, because they went to school together. Deciding to make casual contact first before hauling Brian in for questioning, he called Greg, asking him to have Brian call him back. Brian eventually did, but he was elusive with his answers as far as anything having to do with Josh went. He finally said he had to go and hung up. All attempts to reach Brian after this point failed. The police also wanted to speak with Matt Johnson, of course, who I am not sure had a fixed address at this point. They went to his mother's house and spoke to her. She said that Matt was currently in hiding after having been kidnapped and assaulted by a group of people. When the investigators found Matt, he was in a psychiatric facility seeking treatment for substance abuse. Due to the nature of this place, the police had to interview him there on August 26th, and they couldn't do so in a private room. They had to talk to him out in the main visitor's area, and Matt was clearly paranoid. Anytime someone would get close to the table, he would clam up and refuse to talk. But eventually, Matt began to open up about what he knew. And he told the investigators that when it comes to the disappearance of Joshua Bailey, they needed to look a lot closer, not just at Brian Minton, but his entire group of friends. And not friends so much as followers. Right now, I wish this was a visual medium so I could provide a character map at the start of this for clarity so that you can reference back to it. There are a lot of names here, and I'm going to try to keep it as clear as possible. Just like any story that has a lot of people involved, we also have a lot of stories involved, and I'll also try to keep those as clear as possible. Matt told investigators that he had been introduced to 18-year-old Brian Minton in mid-July 2008, and Brian had a crew of about 10 or so people. Brian committed crimes along with various members of this group, like Jack Johnson and Jacob Maxwell. Jack Johnson and Matt Johnson, for the record, were not related. Most of what this group did was breaking and entering and robbing. They would then use the money they got from these robberies in part to buy drugs, which they then used to party with in Brian's garage. Matt had heard about the group, and he was interested in joining. It was characterized in one legal document as Matt wanting to, quote, go into business with Brian. Around this same time, but separately from Brian, Matt also had a conversation with Josh, and they talked about selling drugs to earn money to then pay for the inpatient rehab. Brian's group, all ranging from age 18 up into their early 20s, regularly hung out and partied in Brian's garage while they also planned their break-ins. While Matt did invite Josh over to Brian's place, Josh wasn't really part of the group. Josh had no connection to Brian Minton and his friends, except through Matt, who was brand new to the group anyway. Though Matt was a relatively new friend to the group, he had already been involved in at least one armed home invasion. 
he told the police that he and his girlfriend Sarah had bought pot from someone in Greensboro, North Carolina. A few days later, Matt, Brian Minton, and four others went back to that house to rob it. They had one of the young women with them knock on the door and ask to use the phone. Once the door was open to her, Jack Johnson and Jacob Maxwell rushed in with guns and robbed the house, taking cash, drugs, and small electronics, including a PlayStation 3 and an iPod. Both Jack and Jacob hit people in the home with the guns, but no one was shot. According to Matt, Josh was not there. It was a few days later on July 29th that a bunch of them were hanging out over at Brian Minton's place. And this is actually where we have a pretty big split in the stories. According to what was presented in Twisted Killers, Josh was at the house and Brian said he needed to go buy pot. Matt told him that he knew where he could go get some, and Josh blurted out, You know he's a narc. Josh said this because Matt had previously told Josh he was thinking of turning into a police informant to get out of some legal trouble. And Josh impulsively just blurted this out to a criminal gang Matt had only recently joined. Matt said he believed he was being set up, and to save his own skin, he pointed the finger back at Josh as being the actual snitch. In legal documents, however, it says that the argument started before Josh even got there. It started before even Matt was there. The group was discussing items that had been stolen, not from other people, but from group members. Sarah had those guns and the two checks taken from her home. Brian Minton's house had a few things taken, some jewelry and medication from his mom, and sunglasses that belonged to his father. Jack Johnson also had marijuana and the iPod he stole from the home invasion taken, and then no one knew where the PS3 had gone. Sarah told the group that she thought Matt, her on-again, off-again boyfriend, was involved, and she also thought he may be informing on them to the police. And this did make some sense. Matt Johnson was the new guy in the group, and then suddenly, things were going missing. Preferring to be the thieves rather than the victims of theft, they decided to confront Matt. Matt was hanging out at another house, so Brian went over there and invited him to come back to his house. When they got there, the group began interrogating Matt, accusing him both of the thefts and of being a police informant. While this questioning did not happen at gunpoint, there was a gun present and visible at the time being held by a man named Brandon. According to the legal documents, Matt then threw Josh under the bus and said he was the one guilty of what they were accusing Matt of doing. So Brian Minton had Josh come over, again with what seemed like a benign invitation to just hang out. After Josh showed up, they began assaulting and interrogating him, accusing him of being a thief and a snitch. Josh admitted that he knew about what was stolen from Sarah's house, but he said it was Matt's idea, and he denied being a police informant. Matt just kept insisting it was Josh and not him, and Josh started to shut down. One of the things he dealt with was the inability to communicate in situations of high stress or when he became overwhelmed. Other than getting out some denials, Josh really wasn't able to continue to verbally defend himself while Matt could. Brian got angry that neither of them would admit what they did, so he ordered the two men, Matt Johnson and Josh Bailey, to fight it out. Whoever lost must be the narc and would be, quote, taking a long ride to the country. 
There were about eight people present other than Matt and Josh who were not just watching this, but at times participating in attacking and questioning the men. What happens next is more or less consistent between the sources. In Twisted Killers, it was said that Brian's goal with this was not to actually figure out who was stealing from the group and or talking to the police. Obviously, a physical fight wouldn't prove that one way or the other. What he was doing was sending a message to the rest of the group. He had ultimate control in this situation. If someone was disloyal to him or crossed him, or he even suspected them of that, he had the power to take them out. Matt and Josh did not want to fight each other. They were friends. They were both just trying to figure out how to get out of the situation. So they briefly and half-heartedly wrestled a bit, shoved each other around. Brian was holding a gun at this point, so they obviously had to do something. No one clearly won or lost this short struggle in reality, but the group decided Matt had still bested Josh, who hadn't done very much to defend himself. He was getting overwhelmed and anxious in the situation, so he didn't fight back as much as Matt did. So they turned on Josh and said he must be the thief and informant, which he was neither. According to what Matt told the investigators in this first interview, Brian and the others bound Josh's wrists with duct tape and zip ties and put him in the back of an SUV and left. An hour and a half later, they came back and Josh was not with them. Brian told Matt that the same thing would happen to him if he ever crossed the group like Josh did. Matt did not know where they took Josh or exactly what happened because he wasn't there. Matt was able to give the police the names of most of the people who were there, except these were almost all street names. He hadn't been in the group long enough to learn everyone's legal name. But he knew Brian Minton, so that's who the police focused on. They followed Brian and made note of the people he hung out with. They then brought photos of those people to Matt on September 10th, and he picked out the ones who had been there that night. Identifying the suspects was not the only goal of this re-interview. The police wanted to see if Matt's story would stay consistent under additional questioning, because at this point, it was the only evidence they had. I also suspect they thought he knew more than he said because they brought a letter from Josh's mother, Julie, with them. She wrote to Matt talking about when they adopted Josh and that Josh had always considered Matt a friend and someone he looked up to. She told Matt that he held the key to unlock the mystery, and if he knew that Josh was not alive, she and Josh's father, Steve, needed to know. They were ready for whatever came, so long as it was the truth, because not knowing was the real nightmare. The last line of this letter read, Will you help us? Matt read the letter and dropped his head. He said that he didn't know Josh was adopted and that he was also adopted. The police then asked Matt what really happened to Josh, and he admitted that he had not been left in the garage while the others took Josh away. He was in the car with them. Matt said that Brian Minton drove with Jacob Maxwell in the passenger seat. Jack Johnson and Matt Johnson were in the back seat with Josh. Two others followed in another car. Matt said they drove to a dead-end road and got out of the car. They walked into the woods until Brian stopped and ordered them to dig a hole. 
the ground turned out to be too hard for them to move much dirt. So instead, Brian ordered Josh to stand in a depression left in the ground due to an uprooted tree. Matt said he closed his eyes and heard two gunshots. Jack Johnson had shot Josh dead. They then covered his body with a lot of dirt and left the scene. When asked more specifically about where Josh's body was, Matt couldn't remember the street names, but he did know the rough area. They drove him around until he recognized the dead-end road. They had been at the end of Twisted Oak Road, in a rural area to the northwest of Chapel Hill. This was where Jacob Maxwell lived. As the investigators walked Matt back into the woods, looking for this overturned tree, the investigators could smell decomp when the wind would blow. It got stronger until they found the uprooted tree and the hole left under it. Except there was no body there. Matt was shocked because he was sure they were in the right place. And because of the smell and because Matt's description of the scene matched that spot perfectly, the police believed him. They suspected that Josh's body had been buried there and later moved. They called in the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation to process the scene. They found near the tree several trash bags of dirt, with a few empty bags as well. To the investigators, it looked like whoever had moved the body was also planning to move some of the dirt to more fully cover up the scene. But they overloaded the bags and abandoned them when they realized they would never be able to move them. The crime scene techs continued to process the scene, and as they did, Jacob Maxwell drove by. The police saw him and realized that if he was involved, like Matt said, he would be quick to alert the others about the police presence near the initial burial site. To prevent him from doing that, they had to act quickly, and they arrested him on suspicion of kidnapping. They quickly got warrants for Brian Minton and Jack Johnson as well for that same charge. And then on September 12th, Josh's family sat down to watch the news, and they heard that three men had been arrested in relation to the kidnapping, not of Josh Bailey, but of Matt Johnson. This news gave the family a glimmer of hope a brief glimmer of hope. If Matt had been kidnapped but was still alive, maybe Josh had been with him. Of course he hadn't been, and it was a different incident entirely that brought these charges. So remember back when the police first looked for Matt to question him. His mother said he had been kidnapped and assaulted, and then had gone on the run. Matt told the police what that was all about. He said that after Josh's murder, he avoided the group entirely, and they couldn't get in touch with him. They believed he possibly went into rehab, but Brian did not trust the situation. He said Matt knew too much about the group and their criminal activities, and also, obviously, the murder of his friend. They needed to make sure he kept quiet. On August 17th, Brian spoke to Sarah, who had been Matt's girlfriend, and told her that he wanted to speak to Matt. Even though she knew Brian didn't exactly come in peace, she agreed to let Brian know if she heard from Matt, which she did because she was reportedly mad at him for talking to his ex. Sarah did hear from Matt, and the two met up at a restaurant. 
Sarah talked Matt into going with her out to Pittsboro, North Carolina, where her uncle owned a garage. When he agreed, she then reached out to Brian to let him know where they were going. He told her to keep Matt there until him and the rest of the group could get there. Matt was essentially ambushed, and the group began interrogating him about the same things they did on the night of Josh's murder, about the stolen items and being an informant. Matt's hands and wrists were then duct taped together, and he was beaten by the members of the group. He showed investigators the hair loss from where the duct tape had been and then removed, and he still had healing bruises from the attack. Matt said that Jack had wrapped a chain around his neck, and Matt then confessed that he took the PS3 and he would get it for them if they would just stop. Brian said he was going to shoot Matt, but Sarah intervened and said not to do that at her family's shop. So instead, they forced Matt back into Sarah's car and drove him to his mother's house, where he said the PlayStation 3 was. But she wasn't home and the house was locked. Matt said he could get it to her the next day when she was home. Not trusting him, the group then took him to Sarah's house, where he was kept overnight with Jack Johnson guarding him. The next day, they drove over to Matt's mom's house. He got some clothes and the PlayStation while his sister called their mother at work. She said Matt was there and that things seemed off. By the time his mom drove home, he was gone again. This would later be confirmed by Matt's mother. She said the call from her daughter came around noon and she was to the house within 10 minutes. After they left Matt's mom's house, Matt told them that if they dropped him off at his mom's job, he could use the ATM to withdraw some of his birthday money and then he could give that to the group as well. They agreed to this and then Matt directed them to his mother's old job at a law firm. He went inside and asked to speak with a lawyer. The secretary told him that they were all in meetings at the time, and he left. The secretary was able to back up this part of Matt's story. When Matt left, he went out a different exit so he wouldn't be seen. He went to a nearby apartment complex and then called his mother to come pick him up and then he went back into hiding until the investigators found him. So it was on the accusations that they kidnapped Matt that the police were able to bring Brian Minton, Jack Johnson, and Jacob Maxwell to the station. Matt's girlfriend, Sarah, would also be arrested. Brian, who Matt said was the mastermind behind this gang, got a lawyer pretty much right away. Jack Johnson, who Matt said pulled the trigger and killed Josh, did agree to talk. After being asked directly how many times he shot Josh Bailey, Jack denied shooting him at all. He admitted he was there, but pointed the finger back at Matt Johnson. He said Brian told Matt to shoot Josh and threatened to kill Matt if he didn't. According to Jack, Matt shot Josh once in the head. When he was on the ground, Brian ordered him to shoot him again, and he did. Now, the police have two stories about who pulled the trigger. Jack said it was Matt. Matt said it was Jack. But both men agreed on one point. Brian Minton had ordered the murder. To figure out which story was closer to the truth, the investigators then approached others who were named as either being there or being involved in the group. And one of these people was Gary Bright. Gary was not there at the time of the murder, but he said some of them came over to his house afterwards. He said that Matt got drunk and tearfully confessed to him that Brian had made him kill Josh. 
Gary pulled Brian aside, and Brian admitted it, saying it was messed up how Josh fell after being shot. But Brian wasn't saying this with any type of remorse. He was actually laughing and joking about it. Gary said he kept quiet about what he was told because he was afraid of Brian, and he knew he wouldn't hesitate to kill anyone who crossed him. And that's also why he later helped Brian when Brian said they had to move the body. Brian was worried Matt was going to go to the police. Gary told the police he could bring them to where Josh's body had been moved to. He said it was near Jordan Lake, which is a reservoir just south of Chapel Hill. Gary took the police down a path into the woods and indicated that they were in the right area, but the investigators were not sure that Gary was telling the truth. They didn't see anything that stood out. But the next day, they brought in a cadaver dog who indicated on a spot that didn't stand out to any of the investigators at first. But when they approached it, they realized that under the leaf cover was a slight depression. Bringing out the crime scene forensics team again, the area was carefully excavated by hand. They saved all of the soil in buckets for later testing, and in the dirt, they found the tip of a latex glove. They bagged it to send it to the lab for testing, and they continued to dig. Eventually, they saw bits of blue tarp sticking out. Something was wrapped in the tarps and in clear plastic. They pulled the whole bundle up and decided to transport the entire thing, as is, to the medical examiner's office before they opened it. And when they did, they found what they had suspected they would find, the body of 20-year-old Joshua Bailey. Later that day, September 13th, Josh's mother, Julie, was outside sweeping the porch when she saw a car pull up. She watched one of the investigators get out, followed by her pastor. As soon as she saw that, she knew they had found Josh and that it wasn't good news. She collapsed, knowing what was coming. Even though the family had suspected it, their reality hit in that moment. This son that they had fought so hard to heal and protect had been murdered. The investigators, having informed the family, got to work unraveling what really happened on July 29th. They had their star witness point the finger at one person, but it looked like he may have been the actual shooter. So on September 15th, they interviewed Matt again. They told him that they found Josh's body and that they had two witnesses say that he was the shooter. Matt broke down at this point and confessed. He pulled the trigger, but only, he said, because Brian was pointing a gun at him. He believed it was either him or Josh. Matt was then handcuffed and charged with murder. That same day, the others, including Brian Minton, were also charged. The police got a search warrant for Brian's mother's SUV, the same car Matt claimed they drove out to the woods in. Inside, they found 9mm rounds, but they also found receipts for a purchase of muriatic acid. Muriatic acid is basically a less pure, less corrosive hydrochloric acid. There had been signs that Josh's body had acid put on it after death, and those excavating the burial site found that their shoes were damaged from standing in the soil, likely because of the amount of acid used. In this case, multiple people were charged with first-degree murder, kidnapping, conspiracy, and or accessory 
after the fact. Gary Bright, who cooperated in leading the police to Josh's body and agreed to testify for the prosecution, was not charged. A few of those involved cut deals and pleaded guilty to second-degree murder. This included Jack Johnson and Jacob Maxwell. Ryan Lee, who was in the car that followed Brian's SUV to the woods, pleaded guilty to accessory after the fact. And another man, Chris Manley, pleaded guilty to accessory after the fact as he had helped move Josh's body. Matt Johnson, Josh's friend, and the one who pulled the trigger, also pleaded out to second-degree murder and first-degree kidnapping. He was given a 24 to 30-year combined sentence. As for the kidnapping that he was the victim of, it doesn't appear that ever went to trial. Another man, Brandon Green, was at Brian's garage with everyone the night Josh was killed, and he was also in the car that followed Brian's SUV to the woods. He took this to trial, and his defense was essentially that he was there, but according to North Carolina case law, presence at a crime scene is not enough to convict someone, even if they didn't intervene to stop the crime. However, he was found guilty of first-degree murder under the felony murder rule, guilty of conspiracy to commit first-degree kidnapping, and guilty of first-degree kidnapping on the basis that it was done for the purpose of terrorizing the victim. Brian Minton also decided to go to trial, and it began in April 2012, nearly four years after Josh's murder. The state presented Brian Minton as the ringleader, the mastermind. Though they didn't say it in so many words, they definitely painted him as the Charles Manson type. He controlled the people in the group, so even if he didn't commit the murder himself, it wouldn't have happened without his orders. As part of their plea deals to second-degree murder, which gives them a chance at parole, the rest of the group testified against him. They testified they were afraid of Brian, and two of them said that Brian told them that his father was involved in the Hell's Angels and that he was basically untouchable. When Jack Johnson testified and gave the details of the murder, he told the court that Josh's last words were, guys, I didn't do it. And then Matt pulled the trigger. Brian's defense wasn't about denying what happened necessarily. Not only was there a string of witnesses placing him at the scene, that tip of that latex glove they found, it had Brian's DNA on it. Instead, the defense argued that Brian was not the ringleader of some highly organized group that did what he said. This was a loosely bound group of friends who occasionally committed crimes together. Brian was hardly some mob boss. His defense was that he did not order Josh to be murdered. The entire thing in the woods was an attempt to scare Josh into staying quiet. And no one was supposed to get hurt. It was Matt Johnson who killed Josh, and it was Matt Johnson who took it that far, of his own free will. The jury took the case and deliberated for more than five hours. They later said they were unanimous about the kidnapping charge, and that led to their unanimous guilty verdict for felony murder. Felony murder only requires that Brian Minton was committing a felony that led to someone's death, and kidnapping definitely fits. Where they spent much of their time deliberating was the straight first-degree murder charge. They were divided on whether there was enough proof beyond a reasonable doubt that Brian had ordered the murder. In the end, they believed the witnesses and found Brian Minton guilty of all charges. When he heard the verdict, he buried his face in his hands. The only sentence on the table at this point was a life without parole. Josh's family members were able to give their impact statements. Steve talked not just of the impact on himself, but also on Josh's younger brothers. Steve said he continued to have nightmares four years later about 
Josh's last moments. In Julie's statement, she said that much of the trial was about Josh's shortcomings, but she wanted the court to know that Josh did more things right than he did wrong. He loved going to church, even through all of his ups and downs. He loved being out in nature. He loved fishing. And he loved his family. He loved giving hugs. And he found a lot of joy in volunteering. She said what happened to Josh was a horror she would never understand or come to terms with. Brian Minton did not speak on his own behalf at his sentencing, but his attorney apologized to the Bailey family. He said Brian has shown him a lot of remorse, and he also brought up that Brian dealt with some of the same issues as Josh, specifically bipolar disorder and ADHD, and Brian struggled to stay on his medication. The judge felt little sympathy for Brian. He called this one of the most cold-blooded murders he had encountered in nearly 30 years on the bench and sentenced Brian Minton to life without parole. And we still have two more defendants that I have not mentioned yet. Brian's parents, Greg and Michelle, were charged as accessories after the fact for helping Brian cover it up. Yes, Brian's parents knew he was involved in a murder, and they advised him on hiding Josh's body. Greg was the one who suggested they move it out to Jordan Lake, and Michelle took Brian and Jacob Maxwell to buy the acid used to try to get rid of Josh's body. Then she helped them rent a truck to move it. And the truck they rented, that came from Greg's business, and he knew why his son was using it. If Greg and Michelle Minton were successful, the Baileys would never know what happened to Josh. Unlike the Bailey family who tried to save their son from things that happened to him, the Mintons tried to save their son from the consequences of his own actions. Maybe that was a pattern in Brian's life and why he thought he could get away with murder. In December 2013, Michelle entered a plea of guilty to accessory after the fact to second-degree kidnapping and obstruction of justice. Greg pleaded guilty to two counts of obstruction of justice. Greg got 60 days in jail and two years of probation, but Michelle was given a 13- to 16-month sentence. According to the North Carolina inmate lookup, she served a year. At their plea hearing and sentencing, neither Minton apologized for their actions. After Brian Minton's conviction, Steve Bailey said that the system had failed Josh throughout the years. He didn't have a stable home placement for his first eight years, and then his parents had to fight for treatment for him. And then when he turned 18, there were few supports and resources available. He couldn't even get basic health insurance without a steady job, but he couldn't get a steady job without access to health care and a medication for his mental illness. Josh Bailey, like a lot of disabled young adults, was stuck. Steve noted that the Orange County Sheriff's Office, taking Josh's disappearance seriously, leading to arrests and convictions, was the one time the system finally worked for Josh. And the Baileys didn't want that to happen to anyone else, that the first time the system works for them is to solve their murder. So the Baileys sat and they looked at the what-ifs. What if Josh's birth mother got the help she needed? What if Josh's needs were fully assessed while he was still in foster care? What if his treatment was started earlier? What if he didn't lose access to programs and affordable mental health care when he lost his insurance? And the biggest what if? What if Josh had more time? The time he needed to turn things around? 
he was taking steps towards it when Matt Johnson decided to accuse Josh of the things he himself had done. Believing that things could have gone another way if Josh had the support and the resources he needed to get his adult life started, the Baileys decided to create that place for others. Since 2010, Josh's Hope has provided job training in carpentry and culinary skills to adults ages 18 through 35 who live with a mental health condition or substance use disorder. They also provide support and workshops for parents who are navigating their children's path to adulthood alongside them. In order to continue their programs, they rely partially on donations. I will leave a link where you can learn more about Josh's Hope and donate to the cause in the show notes. Thank you for listening. You can find Crimelines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and occasionally TikTok. Crimelines is on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes, as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. If you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crimelines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an allegedly funny history, mystery, and true crime show that I co-created and write for.